Session two, the four laws of faith, cliff notes to the good news. Let me begin with a more personal story. As a sophomore in college, I had the occasion to meet with uh, one of the university chaplains uh, where I went uh, to school. He was part of the Office of Religious Life. And we sat down and had a nice conversation over lunch, I think it was. And he wanted to know more about my spiritual background and identity, which of course was a natural question to raise. Uh, we met with a, a chaplain from a university. But how he got at my spiritual background was curious. He didn't ask at any point in the conversation if I believed in God, which I did. He didn't ask if I was ever baptized or ever went through confirmation, and I had done both. He didn't ever ask if I attended church or prayed or read the Bible or kept certain commandments, all of which I did, kind of, or at least as much as any 20-year-old in college does. Instead, he brought out this little booklet, which is on the seat, uh, or somewhere around the seat that you have, and the only question he asked about my spiritual background was, have you ever heard of the spore, four spiritual laws? I hadn't. It wasn't the sort of thing you found in Catholic churches, which is what I grew up in. And yet, as I would later realize, in the history of the world, literally, this booklet has been read by more people than any other form of Christian literature, save the Bible itself. What was this curious little booklet, and what were the four spiritual laws? Well, the four spiritual laws, as I would later learn, in a sense is like a Cliff's Notes version of the gospel. How many of you heard of Cliff's Notes before? You all know these things, right? Now, I know this august group would never have used Cliff Notes in the college, uh, but you're familiar. They have these very distinct black and white uh, covers. Uh, these were created, by the way, uh, in 1958 as a series of study guides, mostly for college students. Uh, they came in pamphlet form, and they were meant to simplify and summarize the content of literary classics. Now, to this day, there are over uh, 300 uh, versions of Cliff's, Cliff's Notes that, that give recaps of popular literary classics from War and Peace and Anna Karenina, Romeo and Juliet, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and they come in these very memorable black and white forms, which I think makes it hard for college students to hide if in the lecture room they have these instead of the real Anna Karenina. Now here's my idea. So this is a very popular cultural artifact in many ways. And I think what the four spiritual laws has done, in essence, if not explicitly, is to try to do for the Bible what Cliff's Notes does for literary classics. That is, simplify and summarize the message of salvation through Jesus Christ. In these 12 little pages, I believe there's 12, it tries to articulate four simple laws or principles uh, that summarize the basic content of the, of the Bible's message about salvation through Jesus Christ. Uh, they promise to give us, not unlike the cliff notes, only the important stuff. And it leaves out all of the presumably less important stuff that we don't have to worry about. Now, no doubt, I would argue, the design of the four spiritual laws with its yellow and black image was very intentionally meant to echo the yellow and black of these Cliff's Notes versions. 
Now, where did the four spiritual laws come from? Well, maybe not surprisingly, they were created about a year after Cliff Notes first hit the market. They were made uh, by a man, uh, they were written and, and produced by a man named Bill Bright, who is the founder of an extremely large parachurch organization called Campus Crusade for Christ. Some of you uh, might have heard of that. Um, he first published these, as I said, about the same time as the creation of the Cliff's Notes, uh, and they were primarily intended as an evangelistic tool. That is, if you were trying to share your faith with a non-Christian, you would either give them or walk them through the four spiritual laws. It was a little evangelistic track. Um, though uh, they were very similar to the Cliff's Notes, they actually ended up being far more successful. They became widely translated, printed, and distributed. Uh, in fact, as of 2013, 2.5 billion, with a B, copies of the four spiritual laws had been printed and distributed throughout the world. Uh, they were been translated into over 144 languages, and if you have sent a son or a daughter to college this fall or any time in the last 50 years, I would place a strong bet that they've encountered this booklet or something very, very close to it. Cliff's Notes' approach to the Bible, in fact, wasn't just a single literary phenomena. The, uh, these four spiritual laws, in fact, gave birth to a whole genre of Christian literature known as evangelistic tracts. Uh, these were small booklets like this. They were common in the 60s and 70s and 80s, and then into the 90s a little bit too. Uh, in a time before the internet, e-blasts, tweets, and Facebook updates, these little evangelistic tracts were the social media of the day. They were the way that small messages were distributed far and wide to many people. Uh, they had various titles. Uh, some uh, were called, uh, this one track here is called Born Again. This one's called Coupon Faith. Uh, this one is Will You Live Forever? Um, and then this was the most ominous one I could find, Are You in Danger? With a picture of what I think is an atomic bomb exploding. I mean, that, that's a real uh, attention grabber, uh, for, especially for a track that's supposed to offer good news uh, to someone. Be that at its may, at its may at, uh, be that as it may, uh, these were enormously uh, popular. It's no overstatement, as I've said, to say that the four spiritual laws and other Cliff's Notes versions of the good news have done more to shape popular understandings of Christianity in the past half century than any church, than any preacher, than any seminary, than any other Christian book available. It is the epitome of roadside religion when it comes to understanding the basics of Christianity. So, what then are the four spiritual laws? Well, I'm glad you asked. Uh, here they are, and I'm just gonna, they're short, and so I'll just basically give you them verbatim. Law one, God loves you. And by the way, I'm just going to, uh, this is not going to be any evaluation in this. I just want you to have the content you can read along with me. Uh, our next step will then to, to interact with it a little, bit, uh, a little bit more. Law one, God loves you and offers a wonderful plan for your life. Uh, the four spiritual laws begins with John 3.16, a familiar passage to most of you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God's love is surely a topic central to the Bible. To be sure, more could be said about the nature of this love, but in a short little booklet, the idea that God uh, loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life seems decent enough. 
And the focus of the booklet, though, specifically, is why God has given God's Son as an expression of that love. Here, the four spiritual laws quotes John 10.10. I have come that they might have life and might have it to the full, or have it abundantly, in some translations. It, they draw, the four spiritual lines, uh, laws do, a rather straight line between the divine love and a certain type of experience in the world. That is, a certain quality of life, a fullness of life. God loves us and wants us to have a full life. The first law ends with a question. What is blocking us from God's love, and what is preventing us from having an abundant life? So the, pre the, the presupposition is that God loves us, wants us to have an abundant life, and yet many of us are not experiencing that. Why is that? Well, turn to law two. Oops, sorry, I forgot to zoom there. Uh, law two. Man is sinful, and note the, uh, the, they consistently use uh, uh, gender, uh, the gendered language throughout the four spiritual laws. Man, but it does mean humanity, is sinful and separated from God. Therefore, he cannot know and experience God's love and plan for his life. Not surprisingly, this part of the four spiritual laws has a lot of Romans in it uh, when it starts talking about sin. There's no mincing of words here. It's our fault that we don't have this abundant life, and the consequences are severe. Death and eternal separation from God are the consequences of our sin. Uh, it actually, in fact, gives you this little diagram in case you didn't pick up on the idea. Here's the holy and loving God who has a wonderful plan for our lives, and here's us. And uh, because of sin, the characteristic relationship we have with God is a striving to get to God, but, it, uh, but what it wants to illustrate here is our inability to bridge the gap between us and God. This is the graphic picture of the consequences of sin in our lives, according to the four spiritual laws. Now, law three begins to help uh, resolve this gap between God and humanity. Law three says, Jesus Christ is God's only provision for man's sin. Through him you can know and experience God's love and plan for your life. Romans 5.8 says, But God proves his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And John 14, 6 says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's an emphasis here in the third law on the exclusivity of Christ as the only way to get to God, which, of course, is graphically illustrated here as the cross bridging that gulf between sinful humanity and loving God. Now, you might expect the, the, this to be the three spiritual laws, not the four. It's, it's reasonable that the booklet could have ended here. But in fact, there's a fourth law and an important step that one must consider. The fourth law says this. It is not enough simply to know this to be true. We must individually receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Quoting Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, the four spiritual laws says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. And it also quotes Revelation 3.20. Listen, I am standing at the door, knocking. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come into you and eat with you, and you with me. Accompanying Re uh, Revelation 3.20 is a diagram, where it presents our situation as one of two choices. On uh, your left here, uh, there's the natural person. And the natural person, metaphorically, the self and self-interest sits on the throne of the life. But the spiritual person, the person who chooses to believe in God, who accepts Christ into his or her heart, has the cross at the throne of the life. And all of the self-interests are oriented and directed 
by the presence of the cross at the center, uh, presumably the heart or the mind. Uh, as we'll talk about in just a moment, the last part of the four spiritual laws is actually a prayer, a prayer to pray as a way of inviting Jesus into your life, and according to the four spiritual laws, becoming a child of God, becoming a Christian. Now, there's a lot to say about all of this, but as we sometimes do in our Theology Matters courses, I want you to interact very briefly about this material. So we're going to do a TAPS exercise. If you've been with uh, me in this course before, you'll know that TAPS stands for Talking Aloud, Paired, or Sometimes Partner Sharing. It's a way to get you talking about a particular subject. And so here are the questions I want you to, to raise uh, and just talk about it in a couple minutes. What do the four laws leave out? What do the four laws leave out of its summary that you would have put in? That is, if you were summarizing the, you know, a couple key points of Christianity, what would you include that the four laws doesn't? And then conversely, what do the four laws maybe overemphasize that you wish it had given slightly less attention to, or that maybe wouldn't have made your version of the four spiritual laws? So turn with a partner, and let's take about three or four minutes to interact with this, and then we'll come back together and, and think about uh, the nature of the four spiritual laws.
Okay, friends, let's come back together. Let's come back together, and I, I wish we had a little more time to share uh, and to continue the conversation, but I was curious if just maybe uh, uh, several of you just might uh, a comment on, on one of the two aspects of the question here, either what you would have included if you were the author of the Four Spiritual Laws, or maybe what you would have downplayed a little bit more. Um, what do y'all think? Yeah, Adele. Ah, amidst the importance of community. Yeah. All of the yous in here are singular. It's about you and God, not a community of people and God. Great. What else? Things you would include or not include. Bruce? The same thing. Yeah, community. That's right. Great. You're playing for your life in prophecy, in prophecy for community. Great. Great. Perfect. So again, community central here. Yeah, Florida. Um, I think the four spiritual laws makes the thing Christian sound like ordering pizza. Yes. <laughs> that, yeah. you know, you just do this, you dial these numbers, you say these words, and you get a pizza. Yep. Uh, you <laughs> dial, you do, read these words, mm-hmm. you say those words, and mm-hmm. I think Mm-hmm. And that God has initiative, and we have initiative, yeah. and there's a mystery and time, and all those things go together to make something vital. Yes. I don't think it's like ordering pizza. Yeah, I think <laughs> very nicely put. I love it. Brian? Kind of a, uh, an answer to both of the questions. Uh-huh. Yes, yes. Right, there's not, you don't see parables here. You don't see teachings. You don't really even see commandments, by and large, right? It, it, there, there, there's, a, there's a hyper-focus on one aspect. Now, I think a valid aspect of Jesus' life and teachings and ministry, but nevertheless, a very narrow uh, focus. Yeah, Lucretia. There's nothing here about worshiping God. No, there isn't. Yeah, in fact, there's not much beyond the prayer of salvation. Now, if you keep reading, there is a picture of a little train uh, that explains some further things. Uh, but, but by and large, this gets you in the door. The rest is another booklet. Literally, they have another booklet for that. Um, well, David. Well, I have to say, um, I prayed this prayer that day, uh, and uh, I'll, I'll have. There's a longer story about that, and to this day, I'm grateful for that encounter with the chaplain. Uh, I'm grateful that I prayed that prayer. But two things uh, had to happen for me. One, I had to go through about a six to eight year process, and a painful one at that, of coming to understand the fullness of God's grace and love in my life that went far beyond this prayer. And part of that, and related, is that I had to come to re-understand Christianity, because this was my lens. As a 20-year-old and a 21 and 22-year-old, this was all I understood about Christianity, and it shaped my sense of spirituality. And again, in some ways, that I was profoundly grateful for, because it really was a, I think it's a, one of several turning points in my life, but I had to turn out of it 
too, and that was painful. And that's another story. Yeah. I think it should be more about forgiveness. Yes. Yeah. 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 Thank you. And then John, we'll get one more here. There's not a lot of interpersonal here. It's only the up-down. There's no horizontal aspect to this. Now, what I want to do, and I wish we could continue this conversation, but I want to get you out of here um, with four critical questions for the four spiritual laws. None of these are meant to discard this completely. In fact, I have some complimentary words to say about parts of this, but I want to raise four questions as a way of interacting more critically. What the basic idea is, what happens, what are the effects and consequences of this summary of Christianity? Now, any summary would have its drawbacks. Even, you know, we have summaries uh, in the Presbyterian tradition, right, a summaries of faith, statements of faith. All summaries have, have drawbacks. All translations have drawbacks. But I want to think specifically about the consequences of this particular summary as a way of generating some self-awareness about the effects of the four spiritual laws. The first question I want to ask is, what's lost in translation? What's lost in the moving from the whole Bible to this little booklet? Well, as it turns out, quite a bit. Uh, one of the basic dangers, as I said, with any summary like this is oversimplification, or uh, what one might call reductionism. In highlighting the centrality of certain truths, it necessarily masks or silences other truths. And so there's a selectivity process about what you're highlighting and what you're masking. So we might ask the simple question of what verses is it citing? Well, John, a lot, Romans, a lot, some epistles, even the book of Revelation. What's missing? Well, the Old Testament, yeah, and quite a few other things, right? No Psalms, no Proverbs. Um, there's even other parts of the New Testament it's missing that offer a different sense of what faith is like. For instance, the book of James, which emphasizes a good work and its role in spiritual formation, much more than this booklet would do. So it's missing the Old Testament, it's missing parables, even in the New Testament it's, it's missing James. Um, we should, I think, at least have some suspicion of any summary that is so narrowly selective or so selective with respect to a very particular part of the canon. Again, it's not to say that any of this is wrong necessarily, but we have a richly complex Bible. Remember, Jerome, as I've said before, spoke about the Bible as a bibliotheca, a library. And this gives only one or two books in that rich library. We could ask the same question about what themes does it focus on. As you all picked up, by and large, the essential themes of the four spiritual laws is our sin, that is what we have done wrong, and salvation, what God has done to fix what we have done wrong. Are those themes in the Bible? Absolutely, those themes are in the Bible. But there are a lot of other themes in the Bible, too, arguably ones that are much larger and more central. To name a few, uh, covenant, promise, wisdom, justice, righteousness, ritual, creation. Arguably, all these themes are more central to the whole of the biblical witness than the simple ideas of sin and salvation. By the way, what do all these things have in common? Well, it's what you all named at the beginning. These are all communal theological contexts. This is all of these concepts are trying to articulate God's relationship with the world or with humanity or with creation more broadly. Sin and salvation is primarily uh, a one-on-one -on -one 
uh, concept, or at least the way it's framed in the four spiritual laws. So, that's question one. Question two, moving along, is, oops, is law the right genre for capturing the essence of faith? That is, if you were given a Bible and said, hey, summarize this, would law be the primary bullet points that you would want to use to summarize Christianity? Now, what's ironic is that the sort of Christianity that lies behind this version of the four spiritual laws is extremely anti-law. That is, it, it, it it's very much goes away from Old Testament law, or even New Testament law. So it's ironic to me that it uses law as kind of, as the frame for capturing the essence. On the first page of the four spiritual laws, it says, just as there are physical laws that govern the physical universe, that's true, so are there spiritual laws that govern your relationship with God. Well, maybe. I don't totally disagree with that. But again, I wonder if law is the right way of capturing what governs our relationship with God. I think, in fact, law, at least in this sense, misconstrues the mode of much biblical revelation. The Bible is filled with some law, but with a lot of poetry and narrative and story and parable and prayer and letters and song and prophetic discourse, all of which are hard to summarize by the category of law. Or maybe what we would need to do is to think about all the various genres in the Bible, the prophets, the parables, the psalms, etc., 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 and have a four spiritual laws for each of them. So the four laws of the psalms, the four laws of the prophets. What would that look like? Well, I'm glad you asked, because I had some fun with this. What would be the Cliff's Notes version of the psalms? And I, here, here are my four things. The Lord is my rock. O Lord, how long? But I trusted in your steadfast love. God is holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. There's doxology, there's lament, there's confession, and there's praise. That's my four laws of the Psalms. What about the prophets? Well, again, I'm glad you asked. I would say, hear the word of the Lord. It's a divine announcement of a message. Ah, sinful nation. There's your sin, but note the communal aspect of it. Mortal can these bones live? The words of Ezekiel in that valley of dry bones. And then finally, uh, the words of Micah, seek justice and love righteousness. Again, note the communal uh, basis of these ideas. So, is law the right genre? I don't think so. And when we conceptualize Christianity as law, as our primary summarizing framework, I think we come away with a really different sense of what our involvement in faith is about. At least, that was my case. Question three. What's good about this news? These are Cliff's notes of the good news or gospel. What's good about this news? Well, primarily, the four spiritual laws is aimed at a non-Christian audience, and the goodness of the, do of the news is salvation from eternal separation from God, that is hell. This is eternal fire insurance. That's the goodness of it at its core. And that's all well and good, I suppose. The gospel is for the lost, and Jesus does promise eternal life. I have no objection to that. But here's my point. If that's all that's good about the gospel, sorry, if that's all that's good about the gospel is that it saves sinners from eternal damnation, then we haven't read much of the Bible. The Bible offers a goodness of news that goes beyond this eternal insurance policy. Just but one example, Isaiah 61.1. 1. 
The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me, he has sent me to bring good news, there's that word again, to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and release to the prisoners. Isaiah was not talking about sharing a prayer with these people. Isaiah was not there specifically to convert them. He's talking about a message of righteousness and justice and dynamic compassion for the least and the lost. Now, that's not all of the gospel either. The gospel does also include an element of sharing a message, a message about Jesus Christ. That's absolutely right. But the Bible speaks to a larger good news. There is good news for Christians after conversion. And that's not so clear in this little booklet. The good news gets you to conversion in this booklet. But there's good news for those who are already believers in Christ. There are ways in which God's gospel speaks into and offers hope in the midst of disability and disease and cancer and depression and the loss of jobs and the loss of a relationship, the elementary school who is a school student who is bullied, the teenager who faces tough choices about drugs and alcohol, the Palestinian whose country is occupied, the Syrian whose land is lost. The gospel has good news for those people too. And it's not just about the four spiritual laws. Four, and we're coming up on the close here, is it all about the decision? The four laws are really just a prelude to getting you to the final step in the journey, which is to pray a prayer. And this prayer appears uh, in, in all sp uh, four spiritual laws. Lord Jesus, I need you. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. I open the door of my life and receive you as my Savior and Lord. Thank you for forgiving my sins and giving me eternal life. Take control of the throne of my life. Make me the kind of person you want me to be. Amen. Now, I have no problem with this prayer. There is actually a lot of strong biblical themes in this prayer, and would that more people prayed a prayer like this. But the point of the four spiritual laws is simply to get you pizza order style, Florida, pizza order style, to say those words. And once you say those words, that's it. You're Christian. Four laws over, it's done. Now, again, I have no problem with people praying prayers like this. I prayed, as I said, a prayer like this in my own life, and I count it as an important turning point for me, at least in some ways. Many well-meaning people have prayed this prayer, to be sure. And at least for some of them, like me, it was a meaningful spiritual experience to have to kind of begin to wrap our minds around what it meant to be a Christian. And yet... There's several unintended consequences of a prayer like this, only one of which I'll mention now um, in sake of time. One is that uh, there's the unintended consequences are that this devalues the spiritual experience of someone, maybe perhaps people like you, who have just simply grown up in the church. You were baptized and went to Sunday school and were confirmed and were church members for part of your life, all of your life. There was never a moment where you sat and prayed a prayer and that's when you became a Christian. You became a Christian because you grew up in a Christian home and you believed from as early as you can remember, right? I remember that was also part of my story. I grew up Catholic and as I said, I believed in God. I was baptized, I was confirmed. I did all of these different things. But I remember feeling, after encountering the four spiritual laws, like I needed to have a conversion story to authenticate my faith. 
And one of the un unintended consequences is that it, it, um, it invalidated, in a way, these normal ways in which I believed and went to church and prayed and experienced the sacraments. And I saw so many people, in fact, in my uh, college days, um, have a similar experience where they felt forced to have a conversion story. They felt forced to pray this prayer and own that as the beginning of their spiritual life and thus distance themselves from all of this experience they've had in the church before that. Um, again, there's others. Uh, for sake of time, um, I'm going to leave them aside for now. Uh, let me get you out of here on this as a word of conclusion. First, I want to say something about why I think the four spiritual laws are not only good, but great, at least in some ways. I think, by and large, the four spiritual laws prompts us to think about what we believe and how we would actually talk to someone about our faith. And I think this is important for two reasons. One, I think, and I said this earlier today, we live in a time when it is not self-evident what Christianity is all about. It's just not. For many people who didn't grow up in the church, that what the core of Christianity is, people haven't read Romeo and Juliet, so they're not going to get the summary of Romeo and Juliet. We need to be able to express concisely what we believe, what the Bible is about, why Christianity is compelling and powerful and transformative, because most people don't know. And you know what? We cannot like it, but I have to say this makes an effort at that. And I applaud that. Because, you know, you ask most Presbyterians, um, you know, uh, to share his or her faith, and they hand you a Bible and they say, direct your questions to the pastor. <laughs> now, I think there needs to be some, there's some place between handing someone a Bible and handing them a four spiritual laws that we need to occupy, right? I think it needs to be more relational. I think it needs to be more communal. I think it needs to recognize the role of faith communities and worship and uh, ethics between one another and service. It has to do all those things, but at some point we have to say something too. And so maybe the good part of the four spiritual laws is that prompts us to ask, well, how would I summarize Christianity? How would I summarize why the gospel is meaningful and powerful and transformative in my life? And if this little book uh, gets you to ask yourself that question, then I say amen, and that's a great thing. I don't want you to have this summary, by and large, but I hope it gets you in the direction of thinking along similar things. Actually, I, I'm fine if you have this summary. Just be aware of its, of its drawbacks. So that's the pro, and I think, and, it, and that's significant to me. The con is this. And it's the same con I have with the actual Cliff's Notes of Romeo and Juliet and Anna Karenina and War and Peace. The problem with Cliff's Notes is that for many, many students, they replace the actual book, right? That's not why they were designed. They were designed to read Romeo and Juliet, the actual uh, uh, story, and then have the Cliff's Notes to help you re review, remember, refine. But what happens for college students? They don't buy War and Peace. They don't read all 1,100 pages. They just read the Cliff's Notes. That's what happens with these things, too. This summary replaces the original. And if this is only summary, and we remember there's original, we remember there's a fuller, richer, more complex story out there, I'm fine with it. 
But when this replaces the actual message, then we have a problem. Because we don't have an awareness then that there are these other things we could have summarized. There are these other ideas we could have included. We only get the summary. And let me say that this is as true of the Bible as it is with literary classics. The version of War and Peace that Tolstoy wrote is way better than the one produced by Cliff's Notes. And the story that's found in our Bible is way better than what we find in his four spiritual laws. The way I summarize it is this, that there's better news in a more complex gospel. There's better news in a more complex gospel. And for that, we need to go back to the original source. We need to read it in all of its complexity and then think on our own how we might summarize the essence of Christianity in talking to others. Thank you very much.